Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises. He is the Amen, the one who confirms, verifies, ensures those promises to us. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 13 of his series titled, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom has been teaching on Christ's letters to seven churches in Asia Minor during the first century, real churches then, with direct application to today's church as well. Today we come to the last church mentioned, the most famous, the most infamous, if you will, the church in Laodicea. And in actuality, it's among the most misunderstood of all the letters to the churches. Issues concerning heat, issues concerning cold, and of course, lukewarm, as well as standing at the door and knocking. But as Tom will show, Christ warns his church in Laodicea that they have abandoned the biblical gospel and have embraced in its place a gospel based on human merit and good works. As a result, they teach a false gospel. So friend, ask yourself, does that happen today? Do you or your church teach a gospel based solely on merit and works rather than on the finished work of Christ alone? Well, keep that in mind as we join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed. If I were to encapsulate the theme of this letter that Christ dictates to the Apostle John to be read and shared with the church in Laodicea, it would be this. Christ warns his church that they have abandoned the biblical gospel and have embraced in its place a gospel based on human merit and good works. So I have entitled the church in Laodicea with the moniker, a false gospel, a false gospel. Now with the other six letters, we have, we've used the outline that Christ does, and so we'll do the same here. And so let's begin with the introduction to the letter, the command to write in verse 14. Notice how verse 14 reads, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, now you'll notice as with the other six letters, this letter is addressed to the angel of the church, referring to the key leader or leaders, the elders of the church. So let's begin then with the character of the city. Notice he says, to the angel of the church in the city of Laodicea. Now here is its location. The city was about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia on the same postal road, and it was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. You can see on the map that it's, a, it's directly um, east of Ephesus on the main trade route that the Romans built into Asia, Eastern Asia Minor. It was one of two, uh, it was at the crossroad of two major trade routes, made it essential for trade and for communications. And here is, by the way, the buried gate to Ephesus, this exited the city of Laodicea, and these gates you would have walked out to head west to the great city of Ephesus. The city itself was built on a raised plateau, about a half mile square and about 300 feet above the plain of the Lycus Valley. It was the most important, this city was the most important city of three 
Here's another view, by the way, of just some of the ruins. They have, in recent years, done a lot more excavation. There are a lot of pictures I could show you, but they really don't factor into what we're going to study together. But here's one picture that gives you a main street, even with the modern convenience of a gutter, sidewalk. The Romans, we learned so much, and our civilization really reflects theirs in remarkable ways. But the city of Laodicea was part of a triad of cities. Hierapolis was six miles north, Colossae was 10 miles east, and so this was the tri-city area of Asia Minor. Now, the city of Laodicea had two very significant problems. The first problem was earthquakes. It was in a region prone to earthquakes. In fact, in 60 AD, an earthquake virtually destroyed the city of Laodicea. This would have been about 35 years before John writes this letter. But because of its wealth, Laodicea received no financial aid from Rome for the rebuilding. In in fact, their wealthy citizens put their funds together and rebuilt it even more spectacular than it had been before. The Roman historian Tacitus writes, the city without any relief from us recovered itself by its own resources. The other major problem the city had was it had no water supply. Built on the plateau, there was no water anywhere to be found. Instead, they piped their water in via a mostly underground aqueduct aqueduct from Denizli. It was about six miles south and it dropped about 350 feet from that city to the city of Laodicea. The problem was the quality of the water that got there because it was not a a wonderful temperature. We'll talk about that in a moment, but it also had a lot of mineral deposits. Here is a portion of the aqueduct that has been that has been resurrected. You can see these are stones with a channel, a tunnel cut through the middle of them. Here, is a, here you can see a little more of a close-up. You can see how they were connected and the water ran through that center hole. Now, once it got into the city, it was spread through a series of pipes. Here's a clay pipe, but you can see how much sediment came with the water that came into the city. That is uh, calcium deposits, and you can see how how much those pipes could close up because of the calcium deposits that came with the water. There is another, you you just get the, the feel of how bad the water was, both in temperature, we'll talk about that in a moment, but also in terms of the quality of water. Now, because the city was fed by an aqueduct from six miles away, it meant the city itself was vulnerable to siege since a hostile army could locate, even though much of it was underground, they could easily locate the water supply, they could cut it off, and the siege would be quickly ended. And so the city sort of got used to negotiating. They became, they became better at uh, diplomacy than at war because they really couldn't endure a siege very long. The city was founded by the Seleucid king Antiochus II. We know he founded the city before the year 253 BC because that's the year he divorced his wife, Laodice, after whom he named the city. So the city was founded before that. Because of a Roman treaty in 188 BC, the city changed from Seleucid control. It came under the control of a nearby city, Pergamum, which we've already studied the letter to the church there. 
But then in 133 BC, Pergamum, along with Laodicea, came under direct Roman rule. And that began for this city a history of loyalty to Rome. Laodicea eventually became the administrative and judicial center for the entire region. Now, it was a very prosperous city, and it was driven by three chief industries. Because it was at the crossroads of two major trade routes, it became a very wealthy city, and that wealth led to a significant banking industry in the city of Laodicea. In fact, Cicero, the first century Roman philosopher, uh, famously writes that he cashed his letters of credit in the banks in Laodicea. It was a very, very wealthy city. The city was also known for the unique wool that was produced by its sheep, soft raven black wool. Some of the locals speculated the reason for the black wool was the water the sheep drank, not likely, but that was the uh, speculation. The wool was used to produce several kinds of garments and even carpets that were widely distributed and it made Laodicea famous. In fact, it became known as Laodicean wool or Laodicean garments because of the, the fame of this industry. Its third major industry was the famous school of medicine connected with a nearby pagan temple, the temple of Min Karu. Min Karu, which simply means the god of the valley, and this god was considered to be the god of healing. This medical school followed the writings of a man named Herophilus who taught that diseases were complex and they required compound medicines because the diseases themselves weren't simple. You put different kinds of medicines together to make the, the uh, medicine that would help the disease. This school was particularly famous for a medicine for curing eye diseases and improving sight called the Phrygian powder. It was made of copper, zinc, and several herbs mixed together and then put, interestingly enough, into a long loaf of bread, and that loaf of bread was then affixed as a bandage to the eyes to hold the medicine in place. All three of those industries are important because they factor into Christ's letter to this church. Now, the religion of this city was, like most of the cities around, syncretistic. They worshiped a combination of local and Roman gods The primary worship of this city was of Mean, M-E-N, pronounced Mean, and Zeus. There were also a lot of Jewish people in the area. Some estimate as many as 7,500 Jews who were living in Laodicea. And so, of course, Judaism was, uh, was a big part of the worship there as well. Now, going back to our text, that's, that's a little background of the city itself. But let's consider the history of the church there. Verse 14 says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. The New Testament tells us nothing about the founding of this church, but like the other six churches, it was likely founded during Paul's stay in Ephesus in the early 50s AD. That's recorded in Acts 19, verse 10, where from Ephesus he reached out to all the surrounding areas. Likely though, this church was not planted by the apostle Paul, but by his traveling companion, Epaphras. He founded the church in Colossae, according to Colossians 1.7. Epaphras also evangelized both Laodicea 
and Hierapolis, the twin cities. Remember the three cities together? And so we know that Epaphras founded the church in Colossae, and we know, according to Colossians 4.13, that he also evangelized the other two cities. And so it's very likely that this church was planted by Paul's traveling companion, Epaphras. When Paul wrote his letter to the nearby city of Colossae, Colossians, he had still not visited this church in Laodicea himself, according to Colossians 2.1. Later, it appears that he did. So that's the history of the church. Let's move on then, and as we continue to look at the introduction to this letter, at the description Christ gives of himself. Verse 14 says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Christ introduces himself to this church with three descriptions. First of all, he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Notice verse 14, he says, I am the amen. Now that is likely taken from Isaiah 65, 16. This is what we read in Isaiah 65, 16. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed, listen to this, by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. In Hebrew, the God of truth is the God of the amen. Amen is actually a Hebrew word. If you didn't know you knew any Hebrew, you do, see? Hallelujah, there's one Hebrew word. Praise Yah or praise Yahweh and amen, amen. It means, the Hebrew word amen means to confirm or to verify. So what is Jesus saying about himself? He is saying that I personally confirm or verify all of God's promises. Reminds me of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He says, as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises. He is the amen, the one who confirms, verifies, ensures those promises to us. Secondly, he introduces himself to this church as the source of all God's truth. The source of all God's truth. Again, in verse 14, he says, the faithful and true witness. This title really further defines the first term, the the amen. And here Jesus says, I am a witness. I'm a witness of what who God is and what God has said, and I am a faithful and true witness. I'm a genuine witness, I'm authentic, and I am faithful to tell you exactly what is true and what God has said. Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6, and he always speaks the truth. He is the source of all God's truth. Thirdly, He describes himself as the origin of all God's creation. The origin of all God's creation. Verse 14, he says, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, our translation can be a little bit misleading. It can imply in some way that Jesus was the first person that God created, and some have tried to use this text in that way. 
In Greek, however, it's very clear. The Greek word that's translated beginning here means ruler, arche. It's, it's ruler, it's one who is preeminent over, or it can also mean, as I think it does here, and most commentators would agree, source or origin. He is the source or origin of creation. He's the one who created all things. And of course, this fits well, doesn't it, with John 1.3? He's the one who created everything, and without him, nothing exists. And the same thing with Hebrews chapter 1. Now, this concept of Jesus as the, the source, the origin of all of God's creation would have been well known to the Laodiceans because they would have read the letter that Paul wrote to their sister church in Colossae. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 15. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, meaning the one with the highest rank over all creation. Go down to verse 18. He is also the head of the body of the church. And notice this, and he is the beginning. That word beginning is our word, RK. Here it probably means the source or the preeminent one in the church. And of course, in this very same letter, Christ describes himself as the source or origin of all of God's creation. Look back at verse 15 again. He is the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one over all creation. Verse 16. Why? For, because, here's why, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Paul leaves no doubt to the Colossian Christians that the the pre-Gnostic idea that was circulating through the church, that Christ was some sort of created being, not equal to to the Father is absolutely not true. He is not a created being. All things were created by Him. And without Him, John 1, nothing was created that has been created. In other words, He created all things, but He Himself is self-existent. He was not created. Now, the fact that Christ introduces himself in this way begins to give us a tip-off to what may very well have been happening in the church in Laodicea. Remember, it's very close to the church in Colossae. And what was the church in Colossae hearing from the false teachers? This sort of pre-Gnostic idea that was a, you didn't need to be saved from your sins, you just needed to, to arrive at a higher level of knowledge. And Christ, well, He's important, but he's not God. He is the first of God's created order. And so Paul addresses that in Colossians. And the fact that Christ introduces himself this way to the church in in Laodicea begins to make us think that the same problem exists in this church. Now that brings us to the body of the letter, the state of the church. We've seen the introduction In verse 14, the body of the letter, the state of the church, in verses 15 to 20. Here is the heart of Jesus' letter. Verse 15, I know your deeds. The body of each of the seven letters begins with those same words, but but unlike most of the churches 
Our Lord has nothing good to say about this church. Instead, he begins with a correction of the sin in verses 15 to 18. A correction of the sin. And this is really the heart of what he has to say. Let's, let's sort of break this apart and work our way through it. First of all, we see here in this correction of the sin, Christ's illustration of their spiritual condition. Christ's illustration of their spiritual condition. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Our Lord here describes their spiritual condition by comparing it to the city's water supply. Remember, six miles north was the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis, one of the tri-cities, was famous for its hot springs that were regularly visited for the sake of seeking healing, just as hot springs today are believed to have some therapeutic power and people go where there are these hot springs. The same thing was true in the ancient world in Hierapolis, a nearby city. Ten miles east of Laodicea was the city of Colossae. Colossae was famous for its cold drinking water, the only source of really cold water in the entire region. But Laodicea, you remember, piped its water in six, from six miles away, and the water arrived not fully cooled from the hot springs in that place, but rather lukewarm. The combination of the lukewarm sort of tepid water combined with the minerals caused both Herodotus and Xenophon, historians, to mention the water in Laodicea and call it basically undrinkable. So Jesus is using their water situation to illustrate their spiritual condition. But here's the question. What does he mean? What does it mean to be spiritually hot, spiritually cold, or spiritually lukewarm? Well, there are two primary views. The first view is that these temperatures describe different levels of spiritual zeal. Under this view, cold refers to unbelievers, those who are completely spiritually uninterested. Hot refers to believers who are spiritually zealous for the Lord. And lukewarm also refers to true believers, but those who are not so spiritually zealous. And the Lord wants them to be. Now, the problem, there are two major problems with this view. This is the most common. This is what I grew up being taught. But there are two major problems with this view. First of all, it's very unlikely that Christ would say that he wishes lukewarm believers were unbelievers. That's pretty unlikely. Also, this view was unknown in the early church. We may speak, because of this letter, of people's spiritual temperature, they're being hot or cold, but that's not referenced in any of the early church writings. There's no reference to this concept, this idea. The second possibility of these temperatures, a second view, is that these temperatures describe the spiritual benefit of true believers versus false believers. True believers versus false believers. Again, you remember the hot water from the hot springs in Hierapolis produced physical healing, and the cold water in Colossae was refreshing. Don't miss the fact that both cold water and hot water were beneficial. In this context, hot refers to believers providing spiritual health to others, 
And cold provides to believers providing spiritual refreshment for others. In other words, true believers bring benefit into the lives of the people they interact with. But Laodicea was full of false believers who were lukewarm. They were spiritually useless. They produced no spiritual benefit whatsoever. Now, when you consider the rest of the description of this church, as we'll see in a moment, this second view is far more likely because as we will see, the church in Laodicea, by our Lord's own words, was filled with unbelievers. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 13 of his series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Tom will bring you part 14 on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.